It's a blessing to be able to sing our psalms as well as read them. I'll ask you to turn with me to Psalm 16, which we've just sung, and now we'll read together. Psalm 16. I will read from the English Standard Version, but uh, we'll make uh, reference to the New American Standard Version, uh, not to take a position, but just the text with which I'm familiar. Let us read these words of David, and then we'll ask the Lord to illumine us as we look into them together. A miktam of David. This is the holy and the inerrant authoritative word of God, so let us give it our full attention. A miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are all the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shale, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we look into these words together. Our God in heaven, we bless you and thank you for this holy word that you have given through your servant David. God, we pray that you would illumine us by your spirit, give us wisdom that is not of this world and it is not fleshly, but that can see and discern spiritual things by the power of your spirit in us. Lord, instruct our hearts. We pray that you would convict us of sin through these words. For those of us who are so often tempted to run after another God, Lord, we pray that you would convict us for our idolatry, for our divided heart. Lord, we pray also that by these words you would build us up and encourage us, that you would strengthen us, that you would set our sights again on your glory and on your goodness. Lord, for any who hear these words who have not yet entrusted themselves to Christ in faith, we pray, Lord, that you would even lead them to despair of this world and of its promises and to flee for refuge to you in your Son, Christ Jesus. Lord, beside you we have no rock, we have no refuge Forgive us for thinking otherwise. Instruct us and teach us now by your spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In book one of his confessions, the church father, Augustine of Hippo, asks an important question. Augustine is offering a long prayer uh, to God, reflecting at great length upon his conversion. And he says, what other refuge can there be except our God? You, my God, are supreme utmost in goodness, mightiest and all-powerful, most merciful and most just. This is often a theme for Augustine, that God is, in his words, the summum bonum, the summit of goodness. In book four of the same work, Confessions, he contrasts his former life in which he was, as it were, running around in this life trying to find his ultimate purpose and good and rest in the things of this world. He says this, I was hankering after honors, wealth, and marriage, but you, he says to God, were laughing at me. Very bitter were the frustrations I endured in chasing my desires, but all the greater was your kindness in being less and less prepared to let anything other than yourself grow sweet to me. You freed my soul from the close-clinging, sticky morass of death. Now let it cling to you. It was his desire to have his rest ultimately in God, to not find his place, his end uh, in this world. And in these words of Augustine, we hear an echo of King David's outlook presented to us in the words of Psalm 16. In our psalm, David declares that his soul's attachment to God as his foremost good. And this is a a prominent theme that is introduced in verse 2 of the psalm. It's a song that makes an evaluation of God. It's a psalm that reflects upon God and what who God is to him and what God has done for him. And he sets that in contrast to 
running after other gods in verse 4 or in, uh, implicitly to false refuges uh, to which he may, uh, may seek preservation in verses 1 um, and 2. For the Christian, this psalm exposes to us the abundant blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus, and they direct all of our, our hopes and our will to find its proper object in God himself, and in particular in his Son. And as we'll see near the end of the psalm, it's not just simply uh, an oblique reference to his Son, but in fact, David, as a prophet, makes an explicit reference to his Son in the Gospel at the end of this psalm. For the unbeliever this psalm exposes the folly and the hopelessness of a life that seeks to find its ultimate and chief good apart from God. The folly that tries to find God in his gifts and not in himself. So following the notion of God's goodness, which is introduced to us in verse 2, we'll consider three ways in which God is the believer's good. And I'll just take these as an outline uh, as we look through this together. First, that God is an effusive good, verses 1 through 4. Secondly, that God is an encouraging good, verses 5 through 8. And then finally, that God is an everlasting good, verses 9 through 11. So let's consider first that God is an effusive good, the first four verses. There's only one request or supplication in this psalm, and it's the first half of the first line where David says, Preserve me, O God. And then from here, he begins to make a series of declarations and resolutions uh, of what this looks like. What does it mean to have God preserve you? Preserve me, O God. We're not given an immediate context. Sometimes the superscript of a psalm will tell us the exact context in which David is writing the psalm. What are the circumstances that might have prompted him uh, to cry out to God in this way? We're not given a particular circumstance here. Though we can infer, I think rightly, that David is in some sort of trouble. Later on, we find David awake on his bed at night, sleepless. Uh, This indicates to us that David is writing this under some duress. Uh, He needs preservation. He needs a stronghold. And he says, preserve me, O God. From what exactly? Uh, Certainly, David knew external threats. Uh, For a long time, he was chased by King Saul, who sought his life. And David even took refuge, uh, quite literally, uh, in various strongholds and secret places uh, from the death threats of King Saul. Uh, Prior to that, uh, he certainly had the threat uh, as a young man of a lion and a bear as he was defending the sheep of his father, Jesse. Certainly, he would have needed God's preservation as he walked into the valley of Elah and faced the giant Goliath. Um, Certainly, in all of his many forays into battle against the Philistines, he would have required the preservation of God. But later on, David also has problems uh, a little closer to home in his own household, his own son Absalom seeks his life uh, and his throne. And so David is a man who is not a stranger to danger. And in some danger, external perhaps. But David also finds uh, danger in his own soul. If you think of Psalm 51, when David cries out with regard to his own sin, there is danger to our soul, enemies to our soul, some from without and some from within. And David writes a psalm that sort of covers all of those dangers. Preserve me, O God. Preserve me from the waywardness of my own heart. Preserve me from those that would seek my life. Then he begins to give a series of declarations. The first one is this. For I take refuge in you. I fly to God. I seek refuge in him. From what? From anything that might endanger him, body and soul, he entrusts himself to God for preservation. Yahweh is his only refuge. In the second half of verse 1, when he says, I take refuge in you, what he's saying to us is that he despairs of all other preservation. There is, a, there is an acute sense of self-insufficiency. David does not look to his own resources, to his own self, or to alliances with other humans, uh, or to alliances with false gods. David despairs of all but Yahweh. In verse 2... David confesses the singleness of his heart in God. He is not mastered by numerous objects of desire. He does not chase after, that's the language of verse 4, or idolize lesser goods that don't ultimately satisfy the human soul. He says this, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Let's take that first half of the verse together. This might sound somewhat redundant. Um, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. In the English, 
uh, that might say, you know, you might say something like, I said to my brother, you are my brother, or I said to my friend, you are my friend, and there's a sort of redundancy. But in the Hebrew, and you can see this in the way uh, that the script is in your English translation, it's actually two different names that he's using. The first is the covenantal name, that unique name for which God is jealous. It's the name I am, Yahweh. The I am that I am. This is God's special covenantal name that he will not share with another. Um, and it's a name that denotes God's self-sufficiency. I said, this is a man who needs preservation. This is a man who needs a stronghold. He needs to be upheld by a power that is greater than himself. And he flies to the one whose name is I am. The one who is his own sufficiency. There's that connotation here as well. I said to the I am, I said to the one who is perfect sufficiency itself, you are my Adonai. That's the second Lord. If you see this in your English, the first one will be all caps. Uh, The second one will only capitalize the first letter. He's using two different names. I said to Yahweh, you are my Adonai. This is the language of mastery or lordship. I said to the I am, you dominate me. Is effectively what he's saying. We get our word domination, dominus, from the same word Lord or Adonai, um, kurios, it's sometimes uh, in the Greek. I said to Yahweh, you master me. And I think he's saying something about his heart here. He's telling us who commands the allegiance and the desire of his heart. That he is not, com- he is not commanded or dominated by lesser things. It's not the creature that commands his highest allegiance. It's Yahweh himself that commands his highest allegiance. There's something about this that is a blessed kind of domination. You can think of this with any, anything that might uh, you know, raise your interest or draw your attention or desire. Um, the more you desire it, the more it dominates your heart and your thoughts. Your mind is filled and your will is inclined toward that good that dominates you. And the better it is the more dominating, the more lordly it is. And he says to Yahweh, you dominate my heart. You master my heart. Everything is thought of through God. From him, through him, and to him are all things. From him we receive life, breath, and all things. And as David says in the second half of this verse, besides you I have no good, or I have no good apart from you. There's some question, and let's take up this consideration, the second half of verse 2. I have no good apart from you, or besides you I have no good. Uh, There is a question of whether David means to say that God is his exclusive good, or whether God is an effusive good from which all the lesser goods derive. And I think it's that second sense of an effusive good. So that we could, potentially it could be taken comparatively. Compared to God, all other goods are comparatively nothing, as it were, a drop in the bucket Uh, before the boundless ocean of goodness that is God. So he could be speaking comparatively. Beside you, I have no good. Um, But David does have goods that are not God. Life, breath, and all things we've already mentioned. Some of the other deliverances that God gives to him. Deliverance from the lion and from the bear and from the giant and from a king gone mad and from a son that seeks to usurp him. Other goods that he has as well, besides simply deliverances. Um, Abigail is a good. Jonathan and the friendship that he has is a good. God has filled his life with good things, rescue from danger, but also the benedictions of a godly wife and a good friend who is to him as his own soul, he says in another place. David's life is full of good things that come to him from the Lord. So how can he then say, I have no good apart from you, or beside you I have no good? David... Are you, have you taken inventory? Maybe I should ask you this. Have you taken inventory? Have you taken inventory? Have you counted your blessings? Have you enumerated the near innumerable goods that God has given to you? So what is David saying? I have no good apart from you. Another way to take this psalm is to say, none of the goods in my life would I have if you did not give them to me. In other words, God is the fountain of all goodness. God is the original. God is the good by which and from which any other good descends to us. And so when David looks at the goods of his life, and certainly there are many Psalms where David recounts the many particular created goodnesses of the Lord. As he, as he looks through all these goods, he is not, as it were, blinded by those goods so as to not see the giver of good, the good himself, the one who is himself 
his good. Not a qualified good, not a particular good, not a created good, the good. Beside you, I have no good, an effusive good. Stephen Charnock, a great 17th century Presbyterian minister, said, God only is originally good, good of himself. That is to say, not a created good, not a good that is made. That's a benefactor who makes good. He's not a made good. He's a good maker. He's the giver of good. Charnock says, all created goodness is a rivulet from this fountain. That is to say, if good, many goods come into your life, these are the ripple effects of God himself. But he says, but Charnock says this, but divine goodness hath no spring. It is the spring of all goodness, but it itself does not descend from a spring deeper or higher, however you like the analogy, than himself. God is goodness itself. And David sees this, and all the particular goods, he loves God in these things. This is not a, um, a world-loathing approach. David is not despising the goods of this life and the created goods. He receives them gratefully as from the Lord, but he receives them as tokens of God's goodness. When he receives a particular good, life, breath, and all things... He receives them as tokens pointing to the goodness of God himself. In a parallel passage in Psalm 73, David says this, Whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you, or apart from you, I desire nothing on the earth. Again, though, we might ask this question, how can you desire nothing upon the earth? What about lunch? (laughs) What about sleep? What about clothing? What about friendships? What about all the goods that enrich our lives? How can you say, I desire nothing on the earth besides you? And I think what he's saying is more something like this. There is nothing I desire to have that would displace you. I desire to have these goods as from you. That is to say, I don't have friendships and lunch and naps from which I don't receive them as tokens of your goodness. In other words, I don't desire them instead of you. That is to make the creature your summum bonum. That is to make the creature your highest good. That is to make a good gift an idol. And he says, that that I don't want. Beside you or apart from you, I desire nothing on the earth. One way of reading David's confession in verse 2 is as a fulfillment of the first great command in Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3, we read this. I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is what David is saying. Apart from you, I have no good. I will not idolize the goods you give me. I will take them as tokens and as, as signs of your goodness. And they, I will not seek them as ends in themselves. I will seek them as means by which I can love and see your goodness. That's David's viewpoint. Unbelievers are often offended by this first great command, you shall have no other gods before me, or the first and greatest commandment, that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The late atheist of renown, Christopher Hitchens, used to say that the God of the Christian Bible is a megalomaniac. Love me, love me, serve me, have no good, you have no good apart from me. Yet David knows what the atheist does not, that God is the supreme good from which flows every other good and the, in, in light of which the value of every other good is measured. He sees whatever good is in his life, whatever fills this world that gives him joy and pleasantness, he sees this as but from God. I seek my refuge ultimately in God, in the giver, not simply in the gift. The satisfaction in Yahweh as his Lord also translates into his relationships with his fellow man. Verse 3, as for the saints or the holy ones who are in the earth, he says, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. And so there's this strange um, movement. He says, beside you I have no good. And then he immediately turns to a group of people and he says, in them is all my delight. I think what we're finding here is that David... David loves those who love the Lord. And this goodness of God in this effusive sense sort of runs through David to God's people. That the love of God for his people is a love of God's people for God's people. That David says, I love those who love you. He is talking about his alliances here. His alliance is ultimately with God, but his alliance is secondarily with those who love God. Make friends with those who love the Lord. Surround yourself with those who know what true good is. 
Surround yourself with those who can say with you from a heart of faith, beside you I have no good. Make your closest friendships and your alliances with those who love the Lord. Again, as for the holy ones in the earth, they're the majestic ones, David says, in whom is all my delight. Psalm 1 says something similar to this. Perhaps these are words familiar to you. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord. He meditates in his law day and night. David is saying, when it comes to my friendships and when it comes to my alliances, they are, with, they are not with the scoffers and with the wicked and with the sinners, but they are with those that love the Lord. A similar text uh, to this one is also Psalm 102. Psalm 102 David says something that has certain parallels to our psalm. There he says this, verse 6, My eyes shall be on the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. What he's saying is, those that I bring near, they are the ones that love the Lord. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. This is the parallel of verse 3 in our psalm. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. There is a second group that David considers also here. As he considers God as an effusive good, he, as it were, shares God's goodness with those who love God's goodness. But there are others with whom he will not forge an alliance. Verse 4, he says, The sorrows of those who have run, your, the ESV says run after, the NASB says who have bartered. Uh, it's a, both, the idea is traded away so as to pursue another. Those who have bartered or run after another God will be multiplied. So there are those who do not love the Lord. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be that find it. And they would love your company. They would love your company. In fact, they chafe at the thought that you do not run with them in the same excess and dissipation that you don't make an idol of this world is an offense to those that make an idol of this world there are many who offer in the language of this psalm drink offerings of blood who take up the names of false gods and give their hearts whole allegiance to these false gods and david says the sorrows of those will be multiplied i will not pour out their offerings of uh, their drink offerings of blood or take their names upon my lips i will not join in their confession of anti-faith in false gods. This is part of allying ourselves with God. If we're going to see God's effusive goodness, that we need to be careful with regard to the alliances that we make. There are those who do not love the goodness of the Lord or who receive the created goodness and make a God of it. David says, with those I will not run. There's a parallel to this also. In Psalm 102, verse, if verse 6, Psalm 102 parallels verse 3, then verses 7 and 8 parallel verse 4. I'll read these for us. He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who practices falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. I'll pause. Do not let those who run after another God, who barter away the true God for another, be your counselors. Do not let them direct your heart toward what is good because they have traded away the good from which all other goods come and made an idol of those created goods. David even goes on in verse 8 of Psalm 102. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land so as to cut off from the city of Yahweh, of the Lord, all those who do iniquity. So what is going on in verse 4 as we consider this? The sorrows of those who have bartered or run after another God will be multiplied. What he's saying is this. He's using the language of trade and investment. Uh, and the idea of those who've run after another god uh, or who have bartered for another, they've, they're making an investment for their soul. They're investing their soul in, if I can use the language of our psalm, a false refuge. He says in verse 1, I take refuge in you. Those who run after another are seeking refuge somewhere else. They are seeking their summum bonum. They are seeking their highest good. They are seeking rest for their souls in that which is not God. And this also has an implicit judgment embedded within it. When you do that, you're making a judgment about God. You are saying, God isn't good enough. God isn't good enough. 
I can't trust his goodness so as to invest myself, my heart, my worship, unreservedly in him. If I can use the language of investment, because that is the language that David uses here. I should preface this by saying I'm, I'm not licensed to give financial advice in the state of California, but what I'm told, or any other state, but what I'm told is that when you make an investment, it would be wise to diversify your investment. So we're told that we might want to have some equity in physical property and perhaps uh, be in the market. And there are whole varieties of stocks, some safe, some risky. Um, And then if you're a little squeamish about the market, to help you sleep at night, you can invest in some bonds. And bonds are supposed to be a little more secure with less growth potential. Uh, And then if you need even greater assurance, you might put yourself into some kind of physical commodity, gold or silver, something of this sort, or certificates if you don't want to hold it personally. And the idea is something like this. I'm hoping in all of these investments for a multiplied return on my investments. I invest so as to grow my investment, so as to multiply good. Can I say it like this? I think that's the right way to say it. I'm hoping for better back than I gave in. I invest my heart that I might receive a multiplication of good. I invest my money that I might receive a multiplication of good. The reason I diversify it is because I cannot utterly and perfectly trust any one of those investment vehicles. I don't know what's good. You know, there might a crater might open up a, a sinkhole and swallow my house, uh, and my insurance might pay out, um, but the resale of that property uh, is going to collapse. Um, or businesses may be driven out of town, which means the property value of my house, where all my equity was, could collapse. Um, the government could order all the gold out of private hands, which it has done less than 100 years ago. Um, The company in which I'm invested could be subject to an investigation and we find embezzlement and then I hold stock in Enron and I have nothing. Um, There are also, Proverbs says, that money sprouts wings and flies away. That's what it says. And so in order to keep it from flying away, I invest it in various vehicles. But here's what I'm really hoping. I'm hoping that on balance, more of them give me multiplied good than loss so that in the end, I have a net gain. I think that's why I'm investing. I'm investing with a strategy for a net gain and I'm not perfectly trusting any one of the things in which I'm investing, hoping that collectively I'll receive a gain. Now, while I may not be licensed to give financial advice, you can make what you want of that advice. Um, I can say this with absolute certainty, and I don't need the state to license me. Um, If you diversify the investment of your heart, you will be most certainly ruined. In fact, I can promise you this. You will receive a multiplied return on your investment if you diversify the allegiance of your heart. But it will not be the multiplication that you may think or hope for. He says there will be a multiplied return. In fact, there's, there's, a, there's a kind of effusiveness in negative. If God is an effusive good, false gods are also effusive. They pour out returns on your investment as well, but not good, but not good. Look at what he says again, verse 4, the first line. The sorrows, the sorrows of those who have bartered for another or run after another God is the idea, will be multiplied. You will receive, it's, it, it's not even losing your principle. You know what I'm after? Nothing ventured, nothing lost. <laughs> okay. He says that if you venture your heart on that which is not God, you will not just simply have nothing. You will have a multiplication, but it will be a multiplication of sorrow upon sorrow. You can hear in this language an echo of the curses spoken to Adam and Eve after the fall, in which he says to Eve, I will multiply, 
I will multiply your pain in childbirth. Uh, you ran after another. In fact, what was the, when is the first time in which man ran after, traded away the goodness of God for a false promise of good? Genesis 3, 6. Um, Eve took the fruit, ate, gave to her husband with her, and he ate. They traded away their exclusive devotion to Yahweh for the false promise of an anti-God who had come into the garden to tempt them. And they did receive a return on their investment. And it was, it was an amplified multiplication, but of sorrow, of sorrow. David is saying, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to invest my heart and invest my worship in that which is not truly God. This is what the people of Israel often do after David. There are no good kings in the northern kingdom. There are only eight in the southern kingdom. And in between times, the larger time uh, in their history, we find them making alliances with the nations and with those gods. And in fact, at times, the altars of false gods are even brought right into the holy precincts of the temple as the people run after and barter after another. And their sorrows are multiplied to them. Multiplied to them. Matthew Henry says this. Those that multiply gods multiply griefs to themselves. For whoever thinks one god too little, Henry says, will find two too many. And yet hundreds, not enough. And yet hundreds, not enough. Our second consideration, that God is an encouraging good. He's an effusive good. Not effusive of evil, but effusive of good. But secondly, he's an encouraging good. Verses 5 through 8. The first consideration, as the Christian, as the believer refuses all false and hopeless portions and provisions, the, the, the drink offerings of the ungodly, and he comes to regard God alone as his ultimate sufficient good for his soul, he won't even... He doesn't even take up the names of God's competitors, but in fact, he fills his mouth, uh, verses 5 through 8, he fills his mouth with the name of Yahweh. He will not take up the name, verse 4, the last line of, the, of those false gods, but the name of Yahweh he takes up, and he just says it over and over again. So he takes up the name of the true God. His contemplation, his encouragement is drawn from the contemplation of the true good. I mean, perhaps we do this sometimes. I don't know if you're like me. Um, we check up on our investments we look at those things in which we've invested to see how they're doing. And depending on the week or the month in which you do that, um, your heart may or may not be encouraged. Do you ever do this? Do you ever, I don't know, we go to places like Zillow or Redfin to see what they estimate the market value of our home might be. If I were going to make a move, what would I get for it? Or we go to our 401k or to our Roth, to our IRA, and we look to see what the quarterly performance is. And uh, sometimes it puts a smile on your face, and sometimes it doesn't. David's doing this. He's He's... He's checking out his investment in verses 5 through 8. He's looking to see how his investment is doing. And he's doing it for the same reason you do it when you look at your financial investments. Hoping for encouragement. Hoping for encouragement. I know sometimes you say, I just got to go see how bad it is. Maybe don't. <laughs> but he looks into his investment. He makes a... He makes a takes an inventory, as it were. Uh, that's what he's doing in these verses. Those others have made an investment for their heart, and they're receiving multiplied returns. Let's look at the return. Let's look at what I get for my investment. This is what he says, verse 5. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance. And he uses that, he uses that covenantal name, Yahweh, is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. This is what he does. He looks in to see what he gets for his. He's invested his heart in God. I have no refuge beside God. Preserve me. He seeks refuge in him. Beside you, I have no good. He has he, his heart is undivided. He is singular in his devotion to Yahweh. And what do you get if you 
devote your heart undividedly to Yahweh, what's your return? It's a very strange return. It's a very strange return. Verse 5, Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance. This is, this is strange. Uh, wonderfully strange, but this is strange. If you invest your heart in the Lord and in no other, what good will you get from that? He says that you will get the Lord himself. God isn't just your financial broker. He is your investment and he is himself, as it were, the multiplied return of good on your investment. Yahweh is my portion. Yahweh is my inheritance. There's an echo of the language of the covenant in all of this. We can hear it first if we consider the the covenant made with Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 1. I'll read it from the King James, uh, because I think the King James gets at the sense of this very nicely. After these things, the word of the Lord, Yahweh, came to Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram. And then Yahweh says to him, I am thy shield and thy exceeding, here's the multiplication language, your exceeding great reward. Not, I'm the great rewarder. Certainly, God is the great rewarder of those that seek him. For those that love him and for those that seek him, he is the rewarder of them. The scripture says that just this way. Certainly, God is the rewarder. But here's the thing. And this is what we need to get down into our hearts and into our minds. He's not just the rewarder. He is the reward. The prize he gives you for investing yourself in him is himself. Is himself. Listen to the language of Jeremiah 31 and also of Hebrews 8 with regard to the new covenant. I will be their God and they shall be my people. If you are his people and not the people of another running after false gods, then what do you get for that? You get God as your God. This is a strange language in which we have, as it were, possession. Obviously, we don't dominate him. We don't don't possess him as though he's not something we own in the sense of we don't manipulate him or dominate him we don't lord over him but nevertheless he gives us as it were possession in him we can say of god he is mine and you can say he is my good not just the giver of good he's the good given yahweh is the portion of my inheritance in my cup the second line he says there is you support my lot You support my lot. We'll return to this in a few moments when we look at verse 10 and 11. But when he says, you support my lot, what he's saying is every single time that I look into my investment, that is to say, every single time I contemplate my God, what I find is that my good, my my good is boundless. My good is, when you look into this investment and someone says, how are your investments doing? And your investment is God. What you can say is, couldn't be better. Couldn't be better. I'm not going to ask you about your financial investments, but I will ask you about the investment of your heart. How is the good that you've invested yourself in doing if it's God? Your answer should be, couldn't be better. You don't have bad weeks. You don't have off days. You never log in and find the arrows pointing into the red. In fact, he says in response to that in verse 6, it's really a a beautiful um, response. He says, The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. This is his response. So how it's it's an interest. It seems poetic to us. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. He's using the language here of property. In fact, this is interesting of of all the um, of all the tribes um, of all the tribes that didn't receive land. The if you remember this, the Levites. The priestly tribe—they were given some cities, Levitical cities—but they weren't given sec- they weren't given portions of land inheritance, lines like the other tribes were given. What were they given? What was their reward? He, interestingly, God says to the Levites the same thing He said earlier to Abram that He will be their reward. Their portion won't be a chunk of land. Their portion will be Yahweh Himself, and they will they will eat from, they will be able to eat the food that is sacrificed. In other words, they will have their portion. Uh, from the ministration and the very presence of God. And, yeah, and the way he says it to them is, I will be your reward. 
David, as it were, stands back, takes an inventory of how his investment is. His investment is God. His investment is pleasant. He uses the language of lines fallen to me in pleasant places and a beautiful inheritance. We might imagine it like this. If you were to receive a notification in the mail from a, an attorney that said that you had just come into possession of a piece of land. Imagine that you've never seen this land. You've never visited it. You haven't seen whether its soil is rich, um, whether its air is clean, whether it's well watered, or even how large it is. And imagine that um, you decide to go and see this inheritance of yours. And you arrive and you're standing there with the, the executor, perhaps, of the will that gave you this land. And you might say to the executor, so where exactly are the boundaries the lines, this is what you're asking for, of my piece of land. So a few years ago, we were putting a fence in our backyard for our dog. Um, got a dog, had to put up a fence. We we're going to put up a rail fence. And my neighbor, uh, fully within his rights, uh, requested that I contract a surveyor to ensure that I did not come over onto his property line. So the surveyor went down to the <coughs> down to the um, county courthouse and uh, retrieved from the records the exact mathematical dimensions of my property um, in the ground buried our markers and he plotted the lines uh, based upon the schematic given him and he dug up the markers and uh, it turns out that I owned half of my neighbor's hedge which was immediately trimmed and um, if I can say it this way, the, the lines fell to me in pleasant places. I had 6 to 12 inches more property on one whole side than I was led to believe that I had. My neighbor might have wished he didn't ask me to contact the surveyor because the fence was going to be narrower. I could even say the lines fell to my dog in pleasant places. <laughs> she has a little more yard to run through. Imagine you're standing there to receive this inheritance, and you say to the executor, so how much is mine? Where are the boundaries? It would be as if he said to you, what are you talking about? What boundaries? What bound this is what David's getting after. When he says the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places, what he's saying is that God is not, a, when God gives himself to you, he doesn't give you a, a stingy little stipend so you can hobble through eternity as a pensioner. That's not what he gives to you. He gives you unbounded good. Do you get a multiplied return? Yes, but an incalculable one. An incalculable one. You get a good return, and it's a boundless good return. David takes it, this is, by the way, probably not good advice to wake up every single day and look at your investments. Um, that I would say, unless it's this investment. And in this investment, gaze long, gaze hard, and, and count the blessing that it is to have this beautiful inheritance. Now we turn to David's trouble, still considering the encouragement. He's looking into his investment, and he's taking encouragement from this investment. His heart is ravished by the thought of this good. Verse 7, this is his response. I will bless the Lord, Yahweh, who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. Let's just take that uh, first of all. He has... He has invested himself in Yahweh, and as he looks into his investment, he sees nothing but multiple, boundless, multiplied good return. Now we come to, you know, real life, as we say. And David is lying on his bed, awake in the night. And he needs courage for whatever it is that ails him in this moment. He's not sleeping well. I think we can say that. He's not sleeping well. He says in verse 7, my, my mind... The Hebrew says, my kidneys, my kidneys have instructed. That would be a, a way of simply saying, um, from the depths of me, from deep inside me, my mind, my inner self instructs me in the night. And what does it instruct him with? He's recounting the goodness of his God to him as he lies there in some sort of bad circumstance, it would seem. He lies there. And what he sets before himself is that boundless, beautiful inheritance of God's goodness. And this is what gives him courage. That he lies there on the bed and he, what he realizes is this. Um, 
whatever this trouble is, it can't take that from me. Whatever this trouble is, it cannot deprive me of that which is my ultimate and highest good. God's goodness isn't just effusive. It's encouraging. It's encouraging in weal, but it's also encouraging in woe. It's encouraging in health, but it's also meant to be encouraging in sickness. Health or sickness, weal or woe, fortune or misfortune, don't change this. Don't change it. If you want your heart to be fixed in the middle of trouble, fix it on God. And David does this, and he's very purposeful about this. He says, I have, verse 8, I have set Yahweh continually before me. This is a discipline of the heart that we must learn. We must be constantly, as it were, opening the books and looking into our investments. <laughs> we must be constantly encouraging ourselves by looking at this. Again, he doesn't say that I've confined Yahweh. He says, I've set Yahweh before me. Not the way that an idolater, as it were, sets an idol before him. But what he's saying is, my heart and my attention, my thoughts and my will are ordered toward the contemplation of and the desire of Yahweh. That we do not let the noise of this world take our hearts off the contemplation of our good, which is Yahweh himself. I don't need to tell you that this is a strong temptation to look away from this good and to find our refuge in this world is a very strong temptation. This is what the world does. It seeks after created goods. It makes idols of them and it wants you to do the same. They elicit your, they, they want you to be troubled. They want you to be troubled. And if you aren't troubled, we have a 24 hour news cycle to make sure that you Stay anxious about this world. But there's real trouble, local trouble, the kind of trouble that touches you, whether it's personal relationships or health or what have you. David says, I've set Yahweh continually before me. It's not that once in a while I think about God. The discipline of his heart is that he daily, and we should even say nightly, <laughs> contemplates his God. If I might make just a side argument for this, get to know your God well. Get to know your God well. Contemplate his names, which reveal his character to us. Contemplate his attributes. Contemplate his works. Contemplate his promises. Know him well. We cannot comprehend him. He's infinite and we are not. But we can know him as he's made himself known to us. He says, first, Yahweh has counseled me, 7a. And then in verse 8, I have set Yahweh continually before me. Yahweh gives me counsel, and I keep that counsel front and center. Verse 8, here's the encouragement he draws. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. This is an interesting statement to make. David is not necessarily saying, I know Saul won't kill me, or I know Absalom will not overthrow me. He's saying, I think what he's saying is, however it goes with me in this life, this life can't actually shake me. What's the worst this life can do to me? Kill me. But that doesn't shake me because my investment isn't this world and these things and this present passing scene in which I'm living out before the Lord. This isn't my home and this is not my investment. David is already giving us an indication that his citizenship and his allegiance is to the one who cannot be shaken. The one where the place where God dwells, where the streams make glad the city of God because God dwells there and his heart is fixed on God and that cannot be taken from him. He's at my right hand. Why does he say right hand? Most of us are right hand dominant. That's our strength. Um, and what he's saying is at my right hand is God. In other words, in all of my strength and all of my doings, the source of all of that is God himself. I know that I will not be deprived of that good. Finally, God is an everlasting good. Our third consideration, God is an everlasting good. Verses 9 through 11. Therefore, my heart is glad. This, he's still awake on the bed, I think. He's still in the middle of the night. But he says, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will dwell securely. These final words of the psalm are some of the most well-known uh, in all of the Psalter. 
David considers his hope now, not just for this present life. He's lying on the bed, and God is before him, continually, at his right hand, here and now. And now our, our, our consideration kind of goes for the long term. So how will it be tomorrow, and the day after that, and the day after that, and all the others? How will it be going forward? Is God only good for this life? Is God only good for the moment? Or is God good for now and forever? Is God simply one more particular good that's passing through my life? Or is God the good for this life and the life to come? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we of all men are most to be pitied. The question that... It's like this with our investments. We, we, we don't want simply to have good returns today. We're hoping for a multiplied increased return um, in the future. And there's a question of whether that in which we've invested ourselves is actually going to remain and to remain paying out effusive good dividends. It's good for now, but is it good for the future? If you have an advisor, he might say, you know, we've looked at the fundamentals of this company and they don't seem very sound and we can't have any assurance that this company is going to be paying returns in five years. Let's get out. So let's take an inventory. You've taken an inventory in God. You've looked at the good that he is for your soul now. He's ever before you continually now and at your right hand. But how's it going to be in the long run? That's, that's where David's mind goes in these last few verses. How will it be in the long run? Will the goodness of God last? David declares unequivocally with a rejoicing heart that it will. The benefit of our salvation and the benefit of God's goodness is not measured by a day. It's measured by eternity. It's measured by eternity. That might seem like a strange thing as he's lying awake on his bed at night, perhaps even fearful that his own life may be snuffed out by an adversary. Um, And this is actually an interesting question that needs to be raised. What is it that, in a certain sense, cuts us off from the enjoyment of our investments? Yes, the investment could collapse, but even if the investment didn't collapse, you're going to collapse. You can lay up and invest wisely and and live conservatively so that you can enjoy your golden years. And on the day you submit your resignation papers, your retirement papers, and file those, you could die in a car accident on the way home. And never draw down one bit on that investment that you've made. Death, of all things, death, takes us away from the enjoyment of our good. Multiplied returns until you die. And David, David puts this consideration um, in front of his mind. Verse 9, again, he says the second line, My flesh also will dwell securely. He's going to enter into that eternal, beautiful inheritance, he says, in his flesh. He affirms in these final verses that God is for him, even in his darkest hour. My flesh will dwell securely. This is an interesting question. Verse 10, he presses this even further. And in this verse, he very definitively moves into a voice that is not his own. We'll talk about this in a moment. For you will not abandon my soul to shale, the, the nether world, the place of the dead, the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. All of our security and all of our enjoyment and divine goodness in this life and the next comes down to the reality of this verse. Will the grave prevail? Because if the grave prevails over us, then the lines may not seem so pleasant. And the support of our lot, as he mentions in verse 5, will last until it doesn't. You support my lot until. But you notice in verse 5, he doesn't say until. You support my lot until I'm, you know, three score and ten. You support my lot. He doesn't say until. He just says, you support my lot. Without verse 10, if I can say it like this, without verse 10, the support of our lot ends. If the grave prevails, the support in verse 5 terminates. In a very real sense, then, David goes beyond himself to speak of another. We're told in Acts 2 by Peter and in Acts 13 by Paul 
that these verses are applied to that these verses are a reference to Christ. In fact, Peter says in in uh, Acts 2:30 that David is speaking here as a prophet. So let's talk about David for a moment. Does David himself think that these that these words, verse 10, apply to him? You will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. Um, I want to submit to you that he does not. Firstly, how would he know that these ver- that this that these words do not apply to him individually? Um, and I would say, based on what God told him in the Davidic covenant, in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13, he promised a son of David's to be placed upon a throne, and he would seat him on the throne forever. And David knows that he is not going to, he himself personally is not going to be the forever king on the throne. And in fact, when David reflects on this, he reflects on it, and, he sa- and he, the text tells us that David knew that God was speaking about the distant future. In fact, I would propose to you that David... While Solomon is a kind of installment, a seed of David's raised up and seated on God's throne who builds God's house, um, that David himself was looking for a fulfillment on a yet farther horizon. He says the distant future is what he's looking for. But what about David personally? Is he going to go to the grave? Psalm, 2 Samuel 7, 12. When you, God says to him, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will, rise, I will raise up your descendant or your seed after you who will come forth from you. I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Back to, back to verse 10 of our psalm. So does David re- how could David really say about himself, you will not abandon my soul to shale or allow your holy one to undergo decay? In fact, this is the ver- in the very first Christian sermon ever in Acts 2 at Pentecost, Peter preaches and he refers to this text and he raises this question. Who is who does David who does David think he's talking about when he says these words because David knows already in the Davidic covenant that he's going to die and go to then be buried with his fathers and remain there it seems like for some time because David himself says that he knows God is speaking about the distant future. Acts 2 Verse 29, after citing this text that we've just read, Peter expounds. Verse 29, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He's saying this in Jerusalem. The valley uh, of, uh, or the the the, uh, tomb of the kings is in the Kidron Valley. I submit probably not even a 10-minute walk from where this sermon in Acts 2 is being preached. And you have a lot of Jews from the diaspora uh, that are in Jerusalem for Pentecost, to celebrate Pentecost. And very possibly, as people do when they go to a tourist destination, which Jerusalem would have been for them, most certainly many of these and their touring around of Jerusalem just in the previous days probably would have passed right by David's tomb. And the tour guide would have said, that's where King David's buried. And then they hear this sermon. And he says, brethren, I can say to you that his tomb is with us to this day. And you've had all these Jewish visitors in Jerusalem saying, yeah, I just saw it. In other words, so, but he just read this text. You will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. Verse 30, Peter says this. And so because he was a prophet, so he's saying about David, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his seed or his descendants on the throne. In other words, this is what Peter's telling us. David was actually thinking about 2 Samuel 7. When he wrote Psalm 16 and he was thinking about the promise of a seed that would be seated upon his throne and a kingdom that would be forever. And that David was actually, when he wrote these words, though he's speaking in the first person pronouns, he's talking about his own son in faith and confidence based upon the Davidic promise. He says, verse 31, Peter tells us, Acts 2, he, that is David, looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. Here's the thing about this. Does David know that he is speaking about the resurrection of the Messiah when he writes verse 10 of Psalm 16? And Peter says in the first Christian sermon, yes, he does. He doesn't say, oh, we can apply this to Jesus. He says, David, as a prophet, looked ahead specifically to the resurrection. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh undergo decay. And then Peter goes, you know, this, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we're all witnesses. The thing prophesied by David is here. It's the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Paul preaches the same text in Acts 13 and says this, verse 34. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. 
I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. That's Isaiah 55, 1. And then he refers to our text. And he says in another psalm, he doesn't say Psalm 16, he says another psalm, which is the one we've read. You will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. And now Paul expounds. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. So how can David say, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay? But he, Paul says, whom God raised did not undergo decay. That is Christ. Now the question. Back to Psalm 16. How is David receiving consolation from this? David, awake on his bed at night, setting the Lord ever before him, recounting the blessing of his investment in God, which is God himself. How does he get... Because David's going to die. David knows he's going to die. And he knows he's going to lie with his fathers. And that his son is going to be in the distant future. How does David draw any personal and joy enjoyment or consolation or encouragement from this i mean david's still going to die david is still going to undergo decay as paul says he did so is this just well hey at least one of my offspring will make good and that's good enough for me you, you, know, I mean? you know people do this sometimes they they may not have i, I think of my own ancestors who came to this country from bohemia and they came here trying to just gain a little ownership and property, which was impossible for them in their homeland. Uh, and they came here and eked out a living working on other people's farms until the Oklahoma land rush of 1879, which they were finally able to stake a claim and have per private property. Um, and the generations that came here right before that died before the land rush. You know what I mean? They came here so that they and their offspring might have a possession land and yet the ones who came for that died but perhaps they received some joy knowing that at least we've got things set up for a better future than we were looking at in eastern europe is that what david's after here you know things are going to be good for one of my offspring and that's that's enough for me i, I think david i, I want to submit that's not david's constant david's consolation is for himself and he's deriving personal cons consolation from the contemplation of what's going to happen with his son, his distant son, the Messiah, who's going to be raised up from the dead and not undergo decay, like David and all the intervening uh, descendants of David until that son will do. How is it da David is personally encouraged? And by, by asking this question, what I'm really asking is, is for each of us. How are we each personally to be encouraged by this? Why should I contemplate the resurrection of Christ daily. I submit to you that this is actually how God supports our lot. He supports our lot. He maintains our inheritance by overcoming the thing that ordinarily takes away you from your inheritance. Death. Death. Here's the thing about this inheritance. If you're going to have an everlasting, boundless good, you're going to have to live. <laughs> you're going to have to be there to enjoy it. And we have this thing, not an inconsiderable thing, called death. And death, death takes us away. Death removes us. This is what it does. Death, death is ominous to us because death removes us from those things that we love and that we enjoy. It removes us from friends, from fellowship, from the material joys of this life. Um, it cuts us off from the enjoyment of the returns on our investments. If we're going to really have a boundless good, a heritage in which our lot is supported, the one who supports our lot needs to overcome for us the thing that takes us away. This is what God does. He gives himself to you, but he also gives you the life by which you may enjoy that inheritance. It's not for a life. It's for a life and for life to come. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Verse 11, he says this. You will make known to me the path of life. What is the path? This is the thing. I, 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 want, to have an, I want to have a return investment, and I want to be there to enjoy it. I need to know, I need to know how to overcome the grave. I need to know how to overcome death. And ultimately, I need to know how to... I, I want to speak not just of the material, but even of that second death. I need to know how to be rescued from an eternal separation from the enjoyment of this good. This is what hell is. Hell is the deprivation of this good. 
Hell is the loss of this good. Hell is the multiplied emptiness and hollowness and despair of investing yourself in that which is not God. How do I overcome that? Verse 11, you will make me to know the path of life. 2 Timothy 1.10 says that God's saving grace has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, and this is what he says, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is what David is talking about in verse 11. You will make known to me the path of life. And what is the path of life? In David's mind, this is the path of life. The resurrection of the Messiah. This is, I want to I submit to you that David's hope is actually nothing other than the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. And I'm not saying that because I'm extrapolating an oblique connection to Jesus. I'm saying that because Peter says that's exactly what David was thinking about when he wrote these words. What was David's confidence? David's confidence was the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Are we, this is, as a prophet, this is what he looked for. This is what he anticipated. This should be your own. This should be your own. We have no good apart from God, but he's done more than that. He doesn't just give himself to us. He gives us life by which we can enjoy him. Look at what he says in verse 11, the second line. In your presence is fullness of joy. In verse 8, he says, uh, he says, I have set Yahweh continually before me. But in verse 11, he's going to be set before Yahweh. In this life, we hope in faith, but in that life, we don't. There will be no faith in heaven, just sight. There will be no hope in heaven, just boundless reality. Does this make sense? Love will endure. Love will remain. But faith and hope will not. Faith and hope are in verse 8. I've set the Lord ever before me. He contemplates the Lord and his promises. But in verse 11, faith and hope, faith and hope are left behind when he stands before the very presence of God and enjoys God in that Seeing as he, knowing as he is known. Seeing not through a mirror or a glass darkly, but gazing upon the glory of God. Verse 11, last line. In your right hand are pleasures forever. Not for a while. Forever. A boundless good that comes to us from the Lord. As we contemplate this, as we contemplate even this, this scene that David anticipates, we're talking about Christ seated at the right hand who is who has opened for us the path of life and his resurrection. And as he sits there in his own very resurrected body, he stands there to us as the sign and the promise of life overcoming the grave, enjoying our God. Trust that we'll take this from this psalm. Uh, this encouragement through the gospel that we enjoy our God who's a boundless good to us through the gospel of his own son who loved us, who offered himself a pleasing sacrifice for our sin, but who was not left to undergo decay, but who entered glory as a forerunner, opening up the path of life so that we may have an inheritance that doesn't end, that isn't itself cut off by the grave. The final way to possess God is your only good in this life and eternity is to possess him through the accomplishment of the crucified and resurrected son of David. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you for giving us your own son who loved us, who gave himself for us, who took away our sins by substituting himself as a sacrifice, paying the penalty due. But Lord, that he not only did that, but that you raised him on the third day. You did not allow him to undergo decay, but you opened to us the path of life that we may be raised up into the likeness of his resurrected glory. Lord, for the purpose of being ever before you, enjoying you as our only good. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for running after another. Forgive us for making idols of your gifts. Lord, help us to fix our eyes continually before you and on you. Teach us these things. Encourage our hearts by these things. We ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen.